Let me pray. Gracious, loving Heavenly Father, may what I am about to present be pleasing and acceptable in your sight and reflect your wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. I ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading a very interesting article recently about AI, artificial intelligence. The idea that machines can do jobs faster, better, more precisely than any human being. And you know, we already have machines that can beat the best chess player, human chess players in the world all the time. We have machines that can beat the best Go players in the world all the time. We have machines that just by looking at how video games are played can learn how to play video games and get perfect scores. We have machines that can build bridges. We even have a machine that was recently developed by a university in the United States which starting from nothing can learn to develop itself, build its own limbs, write and, and repair any damage to it. So it was a very interesting article. But what was even more interesting was some of the projections about what will happen with artificial intelligence in the future. And I'm not talking about Hollywood doomsday scenarios of AI eliminating human beings. One of the things that was presented was that in the future, when the human body dies, AI will be so advanced that you will be able to transfer every memory, every knowledge, everything that is in your brain into a supercomputer. So in a way, you'll become immortal. Well, that's sort of a modern version of the separation of soul and body. But also, it's another example of how we as humans try to solve our problems by ourselves in the historical and temporal time frame in which we exist. And that's not right, because as the saying goes, there's a better way. You know, unlike some of you, I didn't grow up in an Adventist family. And like others of you, I didn't even grow up in a Christian family. As a child and a teenager, I never remember ever going to church, ever. Well, that's partially my father's responsibility. He was a Scottish socialist, uh, very interested. You can't beat me, I'm part of the union. So he didn't believe in things like the church. My mother was a little softer, and as a result, she sent me to what we would call Sabbath Bible School. Not, I think, because she wanted me to get any kind of religious education, but in order to get me out of her feet for a few days during the, during the summer. And I remember, I learned all the typical stories that uh, we tell, you know, uh, David and Goliath, and uh, Daniel in the lion's den, and Jonah and the whale. And yes, when I was taught the story, it was a whale, not a big fish. But there's one other thing I remember from those particular lessons. And it's something that stuck with me at the time. It's something I believed at the time, even though at that time I wasn't a Christian. It's something that I have continued to believe, and it's something I still believe today, something I have never doubted, and that is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have had doubts about other things in the Bible. I have had questions about things in the Bible, as many of us do. 
but I have never questioned the reality of the physical resurrection of Christ Jesus. Now, the idea of resurrection bothers a lot of people. And when you come right, cut through it, and look at what the reason is, it's because they don't believe that resurrection can happen. It's not something that is scientifically demonstrable. You can't observe it taking place. So it's part of this whole scientific way of which society looks at different things. They don't believe in resurrection. But let's turn to the Bible and see what we're actually talking about. We won't go in great depth, but let's turn to Matthew. Book of Matthew. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. So I hope you all have your Bibles uh, present. I'm waiting for it to come up on the screen. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him. They came like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, and see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. So let's go to Mark, the next gospel book. Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. Mark 16, 1 to 8. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, let's go on to the next gospel. Luke 24, verses 1 to 8. Luke 24, 1 to 8. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. 
saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Pay attention to the common elements in those stories. But let's go back. Matthew 28, verse 6. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay him. Mark 16, verse 6. When he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And Luke 24, verse 6. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. Three verses. They all say the same thing. He is not here, he is risen. He is not here, he is risen. He is not here, he is risen. And because he is not here, the tomb is empty. And the empty tomb is the basis for a lot of the contention about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there are four main theories, other than the resurrection itself, about what happened. And we're going to touch on them. But first I want to touch on three different elements which aren't part of those theories, but which are advanced for why there wasn't a resurrection. Is anyone here familiar with the writings of uh, Bart Ehrman? Okay. Bart Ehrman used to be a Christian. Unfortunately for him, in his study of the Bible, he found what he found were so many contradictions that he felt he couldn't believe the Bible. So, he became a non-Christian. He's an academic. He writes lots of books about the Bible, lots of detailed studies about the Bible. But because he doesn't believe the Bible, what he writes has an implicit and sometimes explicit anti-Christian bias. In other words, whatever he's studying, you know what his conclusion is going to be. It's going to be something anti-Christian. And he has posited the idea that Christ didn't die, put in a tomb and die. His, his thesis is that Christ's body was taken off the cross, thrown in a pile, and was eaten by animals. Now, there is some basis for this, in the sense that most of those whom the Romans crucified were slaves or criminals, and nobody cared about them, so they take them down from the cross and just throw them away, and yes, the animals did eat them. But what he advances overlooks a couple of things. One, under Jewish law, the Jewish family was able to recover the body of those who had been convicted and killed. And there is archaeological evidence that crucifixion victims were taken off the cross and put in a tomb, properly buried. Now you might say, well, Joseph of Arimathea wasn't part of the family. You're absolutely correct, he wasn't. But Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin, and Pilate would have been able to deal with them. He would have had a little respect for the Sanhedrin because he has to work with them in implementing policies in the Holy Land. And you recall that when Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to ask for the body, 
Pilate was puzzled that Jesus was so dead, was dead so early. So he sent for the centurion to confirm that Jesus had died. And the centurion confirmed it. Well, as far as the Romans were concerned, that was it. You know, they'd gotten rid of this person that uh, the Jews wanted to get rid of. Well, end of story. What you did with the body was your problem. So he was happy to give it to Joseph of Arimathea. So he was taken to Joseph's tomb. The second idea that is presented is that the women went to the wrong tomb. You know women, they don't know where to go, according to the stories. Unfortunately, the gospel gives uh, other, other evidence. In Mark 15, verse 47, it says, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus observed where the body was laid. In Luke 23, verse 55, And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So even before returning to the tomb on the first day, they knew where the tomb was. So to say they didn't is a a strange observation. But let's suppose that they they didn't know where the tomb was. Well, it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You just have to ask, Joseph, where's the tomb? There you go. Thirdly, if they did go to the wrong tomb and proclaim that Jesus wasn't there, the Pharisees would have immediately dashed in, gone to the right tomb, and said, Ah, you stumble bums, you got it all wrong again. There's the body. The third one. It is contended that the disciples, the apostles, were not good witnesses. Eyewitness testimony, people say, is unreliable. But you have to dig deeper and to see what are the occasions when eyewitness testimony is not reliable. And it's not reliable in cases where something happens, something dramatic happens very suddenly and very quickly. It's not reliable when you're not expecting something to happen. It's not reliable when the people involved you don't know. And it's not reliable when there's a gun present. Because if there's a gun present, you're focusing more on the gun than you are on on the people. None of these apply in the case of what the disciples saw. This was something that involved people they knew, the disciples and Christ Jesus after he had risen. This was something that was not sudden and dramatic after he had risen. There was 40 days when Christ was around and you could uh, observe them. And of course there was no weapon present. They didn't have guns back then and there weren't any crossbows or spears uh, involved either. So we can dismiss those particular observations about the resurrection. But let's start looking at the four theories. The first one is this. Jesus didn't die on the cross. He had a coma. And he woke up in the tomb. Well, this is pretty... I'm tempted to use a a more extreme word, but it's pretty unbelievable. So let's start with the whole process of what happened to Christ Jesus. He was scourged by the Romans. And you know, I've seen pictures of, uh, or movies, where Christ, uh, about Christ's uh, uh, crucifixion, where they sort of flog him a couple of times on the back, and hey, it doesn't look too bad. I confess I have not seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, which apparently has a more realistic depiction. But scourging, you had a cat of nine tails, And in those nine tails, you had pieces of bone, pieces of glass, pieces of metal. 
and those were capable of ripping the flesh to pieces. You had at least two people, called lictors, doing the flogging, doing the scourging. At least two, because sometimes you had four and sometimes you had six. And in cases where you only had two, you also had a third guy on the side in case one of the two got kind of tired. And uh, normally, under Roman law, you could flog as long as you wanted. It was up to the guys doing the flogging to decide how many blows they gave to you. It was a little different under Jewish law because you couldn't go above 40, so normally you stopped at, uh, at 39. But 39 blows, hard blows, with scourges that are going to tear all the skin off your back is pretty serious damage that is being done. And in some cases, it has been observed, or reported anyway, that all of the skin was removed from the back so that you could see through the bones and see the internal organs on the other side of the bones. So you've got somebody who's had all the skin removed, a great loss of blood, probably in shock. That's pretty serious. But of course, the Romans, being the wonderful people that they are, aren't going to kill the person by scourging, because that's not the whole purpose. The purpose is to kill him by crucifixion. So, you know, they, they kept them alive. Then you had to drag your own crossbeam for the cross up to the crucifixion site. Then you're thrown on the ground. Your bloodied back is going to get full of dirt and insects and infection while they nail you to the crossbeam and hoist you up. Then they're going to nail your feet to the cross itself. And you know... Roman soldiers were not permitted to leave the crucifixion site until the individual was dead. They had to ascertain, certainly, that he was dead. So they wanted them dead quickly, except in a few special cases where they wanted to prolong the agony. So they, they would make sure that he was dead. That's why they break the legs, in order to make the person die more quickly. And in the case of Jesus Christ, they didn't break his legs because they knew he was dead. In the case of Jesus Christ, they thrust a spear into his side. And you have to remember that this just wasn't, wasn't just a poke. You had professional Roman soldiers who knew how to use a spear. They entered it. They put it in the right ventricle. It pierced the heart. It pierced the lungs because the lungs had collapsed. Blood and water flowed out, as the Bible reports. So Christ is dead on the cross. But let's just suppose for an instance, just suppose, that he wasn't dead on the cross and he was put into the tomb. How then did a severely damaged body manage to get out of all that linen that he was wrapped in? How did he manage to undo it? Secondly, how did a severely damaged body manage to open a stone weighing several tons from the inside. How? Thirdly, how did a severely damaged body manage to get past all of those Roman guards outside into freedom? So the whole idea that he didn't die and had a coma is quite ludicrous. And as one person observed, uh, if he had escaped somehow, where did he go? What happened to him? And if you had seen him, would you think that this was your, your savior, somebody who probably should be taken to a hospital? No, we can dismiss that. The second theory is that it's all a great conspiracy carried out by the disciples. 
They stole the body and took it away. He wasn't really resurrected, but they planted the story that he was resurrected. This has no element of truth in it either for a number of reasons. Number one, what benefit would they get out of that particular lie? Normally people tell lies to get some sort of benefit. They don't want to be punished or they want to be unjustly rewarded for something. You know, no, I I didn't steal your wallet full of cash because now I've got a stash of cash which I didn't have before. But by promoting this lie, what happened to the disciples? They suffered persecution, they suffered imprisonment, they suffered death. Every one of the disciples, with the exception of John, died a violent death. Secondly, none of them ever confessed that there was a conspiracy going on. You would have thought that given that they were persecuted, somebody would have given in, somebody would have cracked, somebody would have revealed that this was a lie. Why didn't they reveal that it was a lie? Because it wasn't. It was the truth. Thirdly, if there was some sort of conspiracy, it's highly likely that the Pharisees, in attempting to unveil what they considered the truth about what the disciples were doing, would have discovered it. They had their police forces, they had their spies, they had their intelligence systems. They would have been able to find out. Fourthly, we have to look at the disciples themselves. These were simple men, but every evidence points to the fact that they were honest, that they were truthful, that they were ethical, that they were moral, that they weren't going to lie about this. And fourthly, the disciples once inspired by the Holy Spirit, carried the gospel to all parts of the world, convincingly. Would they have done so if they were promoting a lie? Highly unlikely. The third theory is that it's all a hallucination. The disciples didn't really see Jesus. It was all, as I said, a hallucination. Images. It wasn't real. There's a problem with this. There are multiple, multiple witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would they have had the same hallucination in different times, different places, with different people? Highly unlikely. Paul talks about him appearing before the 500. Would 500 people have had the same hallucination altogether at the same time? There's a study that was done which shows that there is no credible case of mass hallucination. The closest you get, I think, is to the vision of Fatima in Portugal, I think it was, where a number of people saw a vision of, of, I think, the Virgin Mary. Is that correct? But even there, you had different people in the group saw different things. So that, that can be discounted. You have to remember that visions, hallucinations, last only a short period of time, seconds, minutes, very, very seldom longer than that. But yet you had people who were sitting with Christ, eating with Christ, talking with Christ. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus talked with Christ for over two hours. Do you think a hallucination would last for two hours? No. Hallucinations are, are also very personal, related to the internal experience of the individual. So you would not see exactly the same thing. Yet all of these saw Christ. Hallucinations have a a definite appearance. And we see from the biblical record that a number of times the disciples did not recognize Christ initially. 
That happened with Mary Magdalena in the garden when she thought it was the gardener. On the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him at first. So the idea that there was some kind of hallucination is pretty tenuous. And we also have to remember that the hallucination theory does not address things like the empty tomb and the stone rolled away. So I think we can discount that one as well. The fourth one is that the whole idea of the crucifixion and the resurrection is nothing but a myth invented by the church years afterwards to promote its, uh, its theories and its beliefs and its doctrines. But let me take you to the Bible once again. And this time we'll go to uh, 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. First Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. Paul speaking. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by, born out, by one born out of due time. The importance of this particular scriptural verse is this. It is agreed that this is the first creed of the Christian church which was developed sometime between 35 A.D. and the early 40s A.D. In other words, a, number, a short number of years after the actual crucifixion. So the idea, the truth of the crucifixion was known to the church and promoted to the church, by the church very early on. So obviously it couldn't be a myth. Secondly, the style of Bible writing is extremely different from mythical writing. The writing in the Gospels is simple, direct, straightforward, easy to understand. Mythical writing is full of all sorts of flowery phrases, all sorts of references to vampires and monsters and neat things like that, all sorts of things that don't really make any sense to anybody. There's some of them included in the apocryphal books which are not accepted as, uh, as canon. Thirdly, the gospel refers to solid historical things that happened. Jesus refers to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So these things were put forward as things that had happened or would happen, not something that someone wrote in the future and looked back upon and saying in the future, that it would take place. So the idea of this being a myth also overlooks the fact that the Gospels were written shortly after the death of Christ and Paul's writings were shortly after the death of Christ. When was Paul writing? He was writing in the 50s, 25 odd years after the death of Christ. There's no time to develop a myth. A myth develops from a kernel of truth that happened years and years ago. Think of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. That's a myth. The gospel is the truth. There's also what I found recently is a number of articles that claim 
that the resurrection of Christ wasn't a physical resurrection, it was a spiritual resurrection. This is sort of an acceptance by critics that there was some kind of resurrection, sort of a half acceptance, as it were. And this isn't actually something new. I mean, there are people who have believed for a number of years that it's a spiritual resurrection. Our friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses, claimed that when Christ appeared to the disciples, it wasn't really Christ, it was a spirit. But he made it look like it was a physical resurrection. But recently there has been more articles promoting this particular uh, idea. And of course this is one again that emphasizes separation of spirit and body. And we do not accept that. Yes, you can have a spiritual resurrection, but the spiritual resurrection goes together with the physical resurrection. There is only one resurrection of Christ. There is not a spiritual resurrection here and a bodily resurrection here. It's one resurrection in Christ. And we always need to remember that. We always need to heed that. Because that is the absolute truth. So we've got these theories about the resurrection. And I hope that you can see that none of them are valid. So if none of them are valid, what is the only thing that is valid? That the resurrection is the truth. So there are a number of things that point to why the resurrection is the truth, other than the negative arguments against the theories I've mentioned. The empty tomb. Well, if the body wasn't stolen away, as some people contend, where did it go? It was resurrected. Number two, who were the first people to discover in each of the gospel stories that the tomb was empty? Women. Well, why is that important, you say? Well, very simple. In that day and age, you know, women weren't to be trusted. Women could not testify in court. You have the evidence that from the Bible and elsewhere that if a crime or a sin is committed, two or three must witness against it. Well, the two or three had to be men. You know, women, women didn't count. And we have uh, evidence from uh, Roman writings as well as Jewish writings that, uh, you know, uh, men are blessed and women are cursed. Blessed is uh, the man who has men boy children and cursed is the one who has girl children. So if you're going to be presenting a story, you, logic would say that you would have the apostles writing in, saying with sound, convinced voices that our Savior has risen. You wouldn't have women uh, doing it. As a matter of fact, one of the critics of the resurrection actually says, well, why are you trusting the evidence put forward by floaty, flighty and over-emotional women? That's the uh, perspective. But there is other evidence that we need to put forward. One is the conversion of James, the brother of Christ, who before was a skeptic. You'll remember the stories in the Bible about how they weren't uh, too happy about Christ's preaching. But after James saw Christ, he became a major leader in the Christian church in Jerusalem. And you remember in Acts, when we have the discussion about circumcision versus non-circumcision, It was James that announced the decision of the church after the debate took place. You also have the conversion of Paul. Paul, who was a persecutor of the Christians, became the most devout 
and faithful servant of Christ that probably there ever was and perhaps there ever will be. Because he had seen Christ. He had seen the resurrected Christ and he believed and he promoted it and he preached it. And Paul says, what did I get for my faith? You know, I was flogged this many times. I was chained this many times. I was imprisoned this many times. I was beaten this many times. As we've said before, why would you be promoting a lie when you're only getting this? Paul believed. And Paul believed because it was the truth. And Paul speaks directly about the resurrection of Christ. And we'll go back to 1 Corinthians. A little further on in 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians fifteen verses thirteen to eighteen. First Corinthians fifteen thirteen to eighteen. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So what is Paul saying here? Simple. If you don't think people can be resurrected, then Christ wasn't resurrected. And if Christ wasn't resurrected, then your faith in him is useless. Christ declared that he would be risen in three days. If he didn't rise, then he is a liar. And if he's a liar, then why would you believe what he's promoting? The disciples preached that they had seen the resurrected Christ. If they didn't see the resurrected Christ, then they too are liars. So why should you believe them? And if there is no resurrection, well, you're not saved. You're lost. And if there is no resurrection... The dead don't rise, they stay in the grave. End of story. It's a key and fundamental part of the beliefs that we have as Christians and as Adventists. We pay a lot of attention to the crucifixion, and rightly so, because on the cross, Christ died for the sins of each and every one of us. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. But the story doesn't end there. It continues on with the resurrection. If Christ rose, and he did, then we too will rise. We too will have eternal life. We too will be with God. We too will be with Christ. And that is the faith that each and every one of us has to hold on to, must hold on to, because that is the truth that we have. I thank you very much.